Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome back to The Whole View, episode 421, also known as the best episode of our podcast ever. (laughs) Not to like set such a like high bar that we now have to meet. I want to preface the show by saying um, I read a Scientific American article called The Racist Roots of Fighting Obesity several months ago, and it kind of blew Sarah and I's mind in the Mm -hmm. best way. And we both felt very strongly that we needed to tackle, we needed to continue to tackle the the concept of body image and um, a topic that I've talked about for a long time, fat phobia, right? Like this continued conversation, but in a a scientific way, because what we both realized is that there is research and science out there showing how absolutely terrible dieting and fat stigma is and why that is feeding into this concept of America getting unhealthier and unhealthier over time. Mm -hmm. And I know, Sarah, you have a lot of science you're going to share on that. But before we kind of fully jump in, I I just also want to say that no matter who you are or what your health situation is, there is no judgment in this show. And I know that when we do shows like this, I often hear from people who have chronic illness and are underweight and struggling or who have lost weight because of an illness and who um, either appreciate highlighting that weight is not that that weight loss is not associated with health or who feel um, that we may be representing the opposite direction, which is that you because you and I both have a history of um obesity and weight loss that we underrepresent those who um, are kind of fighting in the opposite direction. Yeah. And I, I just want to put it out there that regardless of who you are and what your body looks like, the show today is about just that. <laughs> this show yeah. is about how our body and our weight does not determine our worth. It does not determine our health. It is a vessel to carry you through life, which we want to to be as full and joyous and wonderful as we can possibly make it. And that is why we do this show, so that you can find ways to healthfully and sustainably, in a positive way, bring you to your best self. And I think for a lot of us, if not everybody, there's this like weight stigma and culture that has existed for so long that that is how we frame it. And what we're going to ask of you today is to think about changing that. And I know Sarah, before the show, we talked and Sarah was like, after she did the science, that was her thing is like, oh, I need to think about reframing. And so it's not just you, we're asking it of ourselves as well. And this is a journey that I've been on for, I would say my whole lifetime, but I've been actively working on understanding fat phobia and how it leads to 
unhealthiness, both internally with, you know, your own sense of worth and body image and culturally for a couple of years. And there's still like so much work for me to do and so much for me to learn. And, um, I'm excited to, to share this topic with you guys today from a scientific perspective. This is the thing that gets me is we've talked about this a couple of times, uh, back on episode 353 with Beachbody Yo-Yo, where we talked about how dieting on again, off again leads to less health overall. And Mm -hmm. episode 358, where we talked about intuitive eating and the good and bad (laughs) that um, that has, how intuitive eating has it wrong. And uh, we talked philosophically about those things. And we also talked about some science that we knew we had, but the science this week is different. And I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I ha- so I have to say, finding that Scientific American article a couple months ago, um, I remember I texted it to you, and I was like, "This blew my mind." Just the the concept that the stigma associated with being overweight or obese is far more harmful, if not the harmful thing, about being overweight or obese. And, um, and as I, the thing I love about scientific American articles is that they're always very well cited. So there's always like live links that I can follow to the original research. And one of the authors of that article was Dr. Lindo Bacon, who, uh, wrote a a very similar article in scientific American in 2019 that we can also link to in the show notes called fat is not the problem. Fat stigma is again, just like loaded with original research. And I wanted to mention Dr. Lindo Bacon because they are the uh, creator of the like health at every size um, uh, program. So it's actually a, um, uh, and they have done um, a ton of research um, looking at this type of approach, which is where we're going to end up as after we go through all of the research, looking at how weight discrimination separates um, separates from weight in terms of risk factors for, you know, basically cardiometabolic illness, which is the um, the the strongest link. When, when people say, oh, you know, obesity is a risk factor, they're always talking about cardiometabolic. So that means basically diabetes, cardiovascular disease, metabolic syndrome. And what I find fascinating is this field of research that I was really unaware of until I saw that first Scientific American article just a few months ago, um, that it, it's really hard to separate out the impact of being overweight or obese, and probably we even need to find a different lexicon around those words versus weight discrimination, right? Because weight discrimination is a ubiquitous experience for somebody who's overweight and obese. And actually, weight discrimination is experienced um, really across across the weight spectrum, right? So um, there are people who are, you know, absolutely what would be considered a, you know, healthy, normal weight BMI who are still experiencing weight discrimination because of the shape of their body, where their weight is, is placed, even if it's a very, you know, like, even if they're very healthy. And I think that is, to me, that's just, I mean, it it really, it it broke my brain uh, as I was (laughs) researching. I, I, um, I became, um, I became really upset 
um, because I, cu- I couldn't help but put this research into the context of my own health journey, being bullied as a kid, of my self-esteem issues as a teenager, like all of those things. It just pulled on every single string and really pulled it together for me. But I did want to mention uh, Dr. Lindo Bacon has a um, book that is called um, Health at Every Size um, and also a, a follow-up book to that called Body Respect. Um, and I've ordered them because um, I, I just, I basically, Lindo Bacon became my hero in, in researching uh, for this podcast. So I always want to give credit where credit is, is due. Um, I think that one of the things it's interesting having had the experience of being um, overweight or obese um, for the vast majority of my life. Um, to have that personal experience and then see written in a you know the introduction of a you know peer-reviewed scientific article that um, weight discrimination is by different ways that um, that medical researchers measure this is the most pervasive form of discrimination. Um, and that it actually... And legally tra- allowed, I might add. Yes. It is when, mm-hmm. when you look at the discrimination um, practices that one could fight against. If, for example, if your employer discriminated against your age, you have... Um, ways to fight that weight discrimination mm-hmm. is not included because it is so pervasive that they literally yeah. think you are so lazy if you are overweight that you must be bad at your job for example I'm sorry to mean to interrupt I no just, no it's I, gonna I, be that kind of show guys you've got a lot of passion <laughs> I mean yeah I that's I thank you though because I think um that yeah it is gonna be that kind of show it's gonna be lots of back and forth um so what I did not despite my personal experience with weight discrimination, um, I did not really think of it in terms of this ubiquitous experience, so much so that weight discrimination is the most common form of discrimination and it intersects with sexism, racism, and classism. So um, an overweight uh, woman of color is going to have like the the basically like the layers of discrimination on top of each other. Right. So they're, um, she's going to experience this like triple whammy of discrimination because they, they all, they're additive. And to, to see that this is a, um, sort of, it, it's sort of the um, sociology meets physiology meets um, psychology um, is where this sort of medical research comes from. Um, to really sort of see that written in a in like in front of me in you know a scientific article published in a reputable journal, you know, for me it was um, it was really eye opening. And what's what's really problematic about weight discrimination is that it causes this basic chronic social stress. And studies have shown that um, weight stigma is more harmful to health above and beyond any impact from body mass index, Um, but that it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So 
people who experience weight discrimination um, or perceive weight discrimination, like let's, this is, this is about how you feel about your weight, that there is a very strong link between that perception and increased weight. And there've been studies that have looked at this that have shown that um, people who experience weight discrimination are two and a half times more likely to become obese over time and three times more likely to remain obese and not be able to um, lose that weight. Um, so it ends up becoming um, it, it ends up becoming the problem in itself, right? So weight discrimination ends up basically over time increasing weight. And there's a lot of different things that are obviously going into that. Um, but it is it is really problematic because it is a um, the discrimination is itself a risk factor for health that then magnifies itself. It, it becomes its own vicious cycle. And, um, and this is where, you know, as we get into some of the, the um, links with cardiometabolic um, illness, it, it, I really want to emphasize that um, this is a really big challenge, right? So it is a challenge for me personally to really um, look at how I think about myself and I think about my health goals and I think about my weight and I think about my body and I've got a lot of work to do <laughs> to um, to get to a body positive place. Um, but this is also something that we need to figure out as a society. And one of the things that was really interesting to me is the idea of um, having pathologized obesity. So rather than looking at obesity as a symptom, right? So the same thing that is, say, causing diabetes does cause weight gain, right? So that is why diabetes and obesity go together, right? The root cause is the same. And so to look at um, obesity as um, there's this stigma that it is a personal failure, right? If you are obese, it, it's your fault. And I know that I internalized that. Um, I, I internalized that hard as a kid and as a teenager. And meanwhile, I look back and I know now that it was Hashimoto's thyroiditis. It was a symptom of an undiagnosed autoimmune disease. And uh, I think this is something that is really um, not well understood is that um, obesity is a, can be a symptom of something that's going wrong. Um, and it's not, it means that we need to be looking, we need to be looking at a root cause um, rather than saying that obesity is itself the risk factor for the thing going wrong, the thing that's going to cause all these other problems rather than a symptom of the thing causing all those other problems. Um, and that obesity is the like indicator that it must be your fault. And I think this is the, the main um, idea that I want to communicate in this episode is that by, by calling obesity a risk factor, and I am guilty of doing this, I have now, you know, probably a hundred blog posts to find and, and edit to, to reframe around this issue. 
Um, and this is, you know, again, I'm, I admit this is now, um, now that I've dug into this research, this has been something for me that was really eye-opening that I really need to change about my own um, sort of personal discourse as well as my overall view. Um, but what we're talking about here is that the the social stress, the um, mental health challenges of being discriminated against because of our weight is compounding an issue that is a root cause that we need someone to help us with. And, um, and Dr. Lindo Bacon made a, made a analogy in one of their articles that was, um, it's like blaming, um, yellow teeth for lung cancer, but it's smoking that caused both the lung cancer and the yellow teeth. And, um, and that really stuck with me as, um, as an analogy that I could never, I could, I could never uh, create a better analogy than that. Um, to to start looking at um, looking at other um, rather than it being a blame game, right? It's really important for the medical community, for health coaches, for fitness trainers to be looking at. Um, looking at, uh, say, resistance to weight loss or obesity as potentially a symptom that something else is going on and also not the problem. And and I, I'm really excited to sort of get into this research. Or not a problem. I think one of the things about the research that um, was really powerful for me is that you can actually be obese and fit. So I think of, for example, when I was a competitive athlete and how very healthy I was metabolically and, you know, did the full framework of of all my hormone workup and all that kind of stuff. And to compare something like that as as an obese person, right, on paper, um, very quote unquote, unhealthy by all standards, yet nothing actually wrong health wise to then that wasn't genetic. (laughs) There are lots of problems, but um, to compare that to an unfit, uh, normal weight person and the um, comparison would be such that fitness was a measure. And so I'm, I'm excited to kind of talk about that because I think it was a good way for me to frame some of the struggles that I've personally had in terms of knowing that um, weight gain is a symptom of whether it's um, emotional unwellness, I'll frame it that way, right? Like if mm-hmm. you're, if you're um, going through a depression or you're grieving or, or different kinds of things, oftentimes we um, use food as a comfort and that can lead to weight gain. And if you're being lethargic combined with that, it can also create, you know, more unwellness. And so we look at that and we say, in general, as a society, like, oh, well, that's not that's not healthy. That's not good. Um, and so I don't want to 
do that. But I also do want to address this idea that, um, you know, those foods aren't great and those um, unhealthy habits of being of moving less are not great, which we know to be true. Um, But calling it, well, you're gaining weight because you're not doing those things isn't helping someone that's not really targeting the problem. And um, it's creating shame and judgment, which just leads to more desire to want to comfort oneself in the way that you've been doing. And so what was really helpful for me is to think about this in the context of, of fitness. Think about this in context of you know what, regardless of what weight someone is, how can we get them um, to enjoy movement? And if someone is moving, um, how the science shows that as being the real measure um, that we can look at and say, oh, this this actually makes a lot more sense than weight because the numbers start to align a bit. So Um, That said, we are going to be putting a lot of links and references in the show notes this week, both um, the Scientific American articles we just referenced, as well as a ton of research Mm -hmm. um, and science articles that Sarah's going to dive into. So if you hear us kind of briefly talk about something, I mean, even just kind of in this quote unquote intro, um, there's so many things where I've been like, and we're going to talk about this, and we're going to talk about that, and they're like, we're going to dive into this. Um, There's only so much that we can put in one show, but this is, I can't emphasize enough. I hope you hear Sarah and I's um, emphatic, uh, just like brain-exploding excitement about finding research that reframes these things in a way that can really truly drive change if we're all willing to focus on that a bit. And um, I encourage you to read these references because just hearing us say it for an hour, um, you're going to be like, yes, I hear that. Oh, that's interesting or, you know, whatever. But it truly takes time to dive into things and to reflect upon them and to then process that in a way that you can um, impact change in your life and the lives of others. And so if there's one thing that I could ask of you on this show, it's to um, take the things that, you know, are aha moments for you and set aside time when you have time to come come to the show notes and read more about that and see how it can drive change in your life because this is all for nothing if we don't take what we're going to learn and apply it going forward. Um, yes, I actually, um, I, I want to, I want to give an illustration on your fitness point because I think that really is a a good place to start as we go into um, all of this data. I mean, the the studies that are trying to separate out um, weight stigma versus weight and the impact of that on health are really fascinating. It is not an easy thing to do. Um, and the way these studies have had to go about it, it's, it's really innovative and fascinating. Um, and some of them, some of these studies to start with, like we've, we've talked about the obesity paradox on the, the show before where, you know, there's been studies that have looked at um, life expectancy and um, have basically shown that, um, basic, the, the, uh, longest lifespan is actually the overweight group, right? So the BMI between 25 and 30, uh, normal weight BMI between 17.5 and 25 
and grade one obesity, a BMI between 30 and 35, are slightly higher, not much. And it's not until you hit, you know, grade two and grade three obesity. So those BMI, grade two is BMI between 35 and 40. Um, grade three is 40 and above that you start to see an impact on longevity. And so what that, what that research indicates is that our entire perception of what a healthy weight is, is probably not right. And, um, Stacey, your point about fitness is a hundred percent spot on. There was a study, this was way back in 1999, but like published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which is one of the top journals. And they actually um, took the time to separate out not just by BMI, but fit and unfit people. And they they measured their cardiorespiratory fitness and showed that um, they were looking at all-cause mortality, which is a, a general measurement of health and wellness, that the fit people basically across the weight spectrum had the same... Um, risk of all-cause mortality. And it was unfit, right? So unfit in normal weight was still like 2.2 times higher risk compared to fit in normal weight. In overweight, it was 2.5 times higher compared to fit. And in obese, it was three times higher compared to fit. So it's, it was, it's the magnification of, um, of not being fit with uh, being obese, that there's there's that signal. But as soon as you looked at fitness, fitness was by far a more important determinant of all-cause mortality in the study. And it's because, again, right, healthy habits are still really important. And, you know, we've talked about this on the show before in the context of intuitive eating, that um, it is really important to be doing these, you know, important, right? Be active, get enough sleep, um, improve resilience to stress slash reduce stress when possible. Um, you know, a nutrient dense diet, uh, an anti-inflammatory diet, diet that's full of fruits and vegetables. These are really important things for reducing all cause mortality. And they're really important independent of weight, right? They benefit metrics of health independent of weight. And that is um, what I think a lot of this research has shown is that um, by making healthy day-to-day choices, right, by making, you know, improving um, the healthy eating index, which is, you know, very heavily focused on whole foods and lots more fruits and vegetables, um, that improves things like cholesterol and blood pressure, in everybody. And so when we talk about, you know, separating out the impact of weight versus weight stigma on health, it really highlights that the things that we talk about on this podcast all the time as, you know, health promoting habits, those are the important thing. Um, and that, you know, what the, what these studies sort of continue to show is that, losing weight is not necessary for being healthy. And I've, I mean, I know our longtime listeners have heard me say this before, um, that it's, it's much more important to get healthy, to lose weight rather than to lose weight, to get healthy. And what I mean by that is 
that when we work on all of these um, habits, right, our, um, we change our palate and the foods that we're used to so that it is our normal every day to eat healthier food. We prioritize sleep so it's our normal every day to go to bed at a good time and get at least eight hours of sleep every single night. We um, restructure our lives so that we are active throughout the day. We don't have prolonged sedentary periods and that we get you know, some moderately intense activity throughout the week, right? We turn those into our norm and we can improve our health dramatically. And then for a lot of people, those things will result in weight loss without trying. Um, And it's okay if it doesn't, because those things are still going to benefit our lifelong health. And that is what this collection of research shows. And so I really wanted to start with some of these like big picture numbers of fitness is really important. And what's happening with weight stigma is that people feel like they can, I remember feeling, I'm going to own this. I remember feeling like I was too fat to go to a gym and that I couldn't go work out because I didn't fit whatever the, was the, the, the body type that was allowed in those doors. And that is the thing that we need to fix because fitness needs to be accessible to everybody. I a hundred percent hear you because I also cried in the parking lot when I went to CrossFit for the first time. And when I went to the gym, when I got pregnant with Cole, so I don't know, you know, if you've heard the story before listeners, I don't recall telling it, but um, the reason that I had a wonderful surprise pregnancy with Cole is because I hadn't had a period in a couple of years. I had been living a very sedentary, um, unhealthy life. And I say unhealthy, not because I was overweight, but because I wasn't doing physical activity and I wasn't eating anti-inflammatory foods and I wasn't doing uh, good sleeping habits or anything like that. And I decided that I was going to go to a gym and I was like, I didn't even have money. I didn't have, a, you know, a good job at the time or anything like that. I think it was actually um, like just graduated college and I paid way more to go to an all women's gym so that I would feel less uncomfortable and more likely to go um, because that is what felt comfortable for me instead mm-hmm. of like I tried to go to I won't say the name but you know there's there's a gym that's like ten dollars or whatever you know yep. and like that would have been all I needed in terms of the equipment I was using and I I was too full of shame to go and I also remember being a teenager and um hearing you know friends or family talk about people who were like jogging um on this because I grew up on, at the beach um who were not an ideal um, weight and making fun of them. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, like reflecting back now, like that's what I kind of like grew up hearing. No wonder like I didn't want to publicly go out and do exercise or whatever, you know? And I think one of the things that I, I mentioned fitness is kind of my big takeaway from this is like, I feel my best when I'm doing these things. And we've talked about it so often, but you know, physical exercise is um, an endorphin rush for me, more so than all the facts that we put on paper. Like, I feel my best when I am exercising. I feel good about myself and whatever. And um, 
it's been difficult for me both to find things that I enjoy that I'm good at. And the, and part of that is because exercise was a punishment growing up, right? Like, ex- and, and this is part of yeah. the fat phobic culture is, you know, you, you need to do whatever because you're fat, because you're gaining weight and it becomes um, a mental game and a punishment instead of thinking about it from the perspective of kind of where I've come to as an adult, which is how lucky I am to be able to move my body, to be able to feel good because of my back injury, right? It took like a severe injury in order for me to appreciate those things and to now realize how important fitness is. And I, I know I mentioned it, but, um, there was an, uh, a study about 25,000, it was men, it was not women, but 25,000 men for a 10-year study, In each man was a minimum of a year, and they determined that based on all of their weight, that um, cardiorespiratory fitness was as strong of an independent predictor of mm-hmm. cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality compared to that of, for example, diabetes or other um, cardiovascular risk factors. And so to me, and then and then we're going to talk about BMI a little bit. I know you mentioned it, but um, it's actually more inaccurate to look at BMI as a healthy or unhealthy. It's like 51% um, is incorrect in terms of if, if they're healthy or if they're not healthy. And so for me, I'm like, I'm having all these kind of brain explosions. Like we have this base knowledge that is put out by, you know, wherever this information comes from, that's like, um, if you lose weight, you'll be healthier. And I'm like, where, but where is that actual, like, where is the data that shows me that if everybody exercised and ate the exact same thing, right? If we like put this, if we put a prescription in a bubble and then we said, okay, you do this exact bubble and you will have your, your ideal body will be this like normal, perfect health, this picture, um, that is not real. Like we don't have any data to, to show that it, it doesn't exist. And that's kind of blows my mind is that, We've we've got information that talks about, like you said, diabetes, but then you've got all these cofactors that go with that. And another thing that we don't talk about often in the show because it seems a bit over obvious to us, but like smoking is another thing. A lot of these people who, you know, are in this category of um, unhealth with you know, the, the true metrics of health are often not just obese, but they're also often smokers or they're, you know, not, um, they have other factors of non-indicators of health. And so Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard for us to break this apart because it's so ingrained in the culture, but I'm going to be quiet and I'm going to let you actually dig into some of the science we've been talking about now for half an hour, but haven't actually (laughs) gotten to, but, um, I I do just, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I can't. I, I, when we talk about personal history and the feelings of shame or guilt that we have around working out or being judged, or in my case, um, my true wake up call was when I lost weight and saw how differently I was treated because I'd been overweight my whole life. And um, people opened doors for me or were nicer to me, or I got a promotion at work. Like, the like that is the real um that was the moment for me when i realized that our country has a problem when i actually like got 
when I actually lost the weight, yeah. right, is when I realized it was a problem. So what's that saying? <laughs> um, uh, it's interesting that you mention how uh, poor of an indicator BMI is for individual measuring in, an individual's health, um, because the entire body mass index was never actually developed as an individual indicator. It was never actually meant to be used to apply to one person. It was always meant to be used as a way of measuring entire populations, right? So when, when you average it out over a population, um, then you can start to write, st tease apart some of the interesting correlations. When you apply it to one person, again, it's it has a very, very high likelihood of being incorrect. And so um, it's just one of those interesting, like it, that. It does not mean what you think it means, is, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, um, I, I it was will never put this source in the um, document, but specifically since we've alluded to it a couple of times, I'll be specific. The study found that 51% of people of healthy people um, in real life, when you measure, you know, um, the metrics of health that we talk about on this show. Um, are deemed unhealthy by a BMI scale. So 51%. Right. That's that is less correct than it is wrong. So um it's a coin it's a coin flip. Yeah. It is a and, slightly and weighted. So why coin would flip. we use something that is a coin flip, you know? Yeah, exactly. So going into some of the really um I think really innovative research that has looked at separating out weight discrimination, um, or, uh, weight stigma from the impact of weight. Um, there's been, it, this has been done again, sort of mainly in cardiometabolic disease. Of course, the, the reason why this type of research is important in cardiometabolic diseases is there's two reasons. One is these are the conditions that have been sort of traditionally linked to overweight and obesity. So if you're overweight and or obese, uh, you have a higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes. You have a high, higher risk of developing cardiovascular disease. Those associations, again, it perhaps more akin to associating yellow teeth with lung cancer. But again, those, those associations have been drawn in the medical literature for uh, decades. And so it's important because of that's where the um, the pathologizing of obesity um, is derived. But it's also important because these are chronic health conditions for which we have a number to follow that we know increases risk, right? So for um, diabetes, we can look at fasting blood glucose, fasting insulin. We can look at HbA1c. Um, and as a long-term measurement of, of blood sugar regulation, um, we can look at things like markers of inflammation. We can look at C-reactive protein. For cardiovascular disease, we can look at things like uh, systolic and diastolic blood pressure. We can look at heart rate and heart rate variability. Um, we can look at um, we can look at things like LDL cholesterol, triglycerides. Right. So we have this really well-established. Um, measurement. And we don't necessarily have a way of quantifying risk for other conditions. Um, so for example, autoimmune disease, there's no way of, of like you either, 
yeah, you, you have this marker in your blood and you have it, or, I mean, if you're lucky enough to have an autoimmune disease for which there is a marker, cause there isn't a marker for all autoimmune diseases. Um, but we don't have a, you know, if your antibodies are this high or this high, it, that, that doesn't necessarily means anything in the context of autoimmune disease, but in cardiovascular disease and diabetes, you know, how well regulated your blood sugar levels are is a direct indicator of how well managed the diabetes is. So, um, so that's another reason why looking at this research is really helpful. Um, so it's interesting. Um, I actually want to start with some of the cardiovascular disease research, because I think that, um, these studies have been, um, really interestingly designed. So for example, there was one study where they, uh, took a, a group of, um, people and they, they had a, a control. So they just, right. Measured their, um, blood pressure, measured their heart rate variability, measured their, um, markers of cardiovascular stress. So they were looking at C-reactive protein, which is an inflammatory marker, hemoglobin A1C, measurement of long-term blood sugar regulation and cortisol, right. Measurement of stress. And then they had two, um, like intervention groups. So uh, two groups of people who were told that they were giving a presentation, a live presentation. One was video and one was audio only. So the audio only people, you're giving a presentation, people are going to be listening to you, but people can't see you. Um, uh, or they can only see you from, you know, like they can only see your, your head, right? Um, which was a, a, a similar design study. Um, and then the other group, you're giving a presentation and everyone's going to see you. Everyone's going to see what you look like. And uh, they can measure, right? So giving a presentation, it sort of, it, it amps you up. It's, it's stressful. You know, uh, there's a whole lot of people who um, don't like speaking in front of audiences. I love speaking in front of an audience, but it's still stressful. I still get really amped when I'm doing it. Um, I, I would be fascinated to know what my heart rate variability is doing at that moment. Um, and what they've shown is that the, and then they do this in normal weight people and overweight people, right? So people who have never experienced weight discrimination before, right? So they have various surveys that they can, um, that they can use to, to sort of drill down on that versus people who have. And what they show is that if you are, giving this video presentation where people are going to see you and you've experienced weight discrimination in the past, that you have a dramatically higher uh, blood pressure as a result, heart rate variability as a result, your, um, your blood sugar is going to be uh, less well-regulated, your cortisol is going to be higher, and your inflammatory markers are going to be higher. Like that is just, I mean, such a fascinating uh, way of actually getting into like separating that effect. Um, and it, it's like, it's really marked and that is to me fascinating. And again, why looking at cardiovascular disease and diabetes is such a great, um, a great sort of model in which to, to look because we have established risk factors and established measurements that are quantified. So it's not, um, it's, it's, it's not semi-quantification, which is what you would get out of a, you know, a quality of life score where you do a survey and your answers are worth a certain number of points. Um, it is a, this number, and we know what this number means in terms of disease risk and in terms of overall health. Interestingly with diabetes, um, studies have actually, studies have shown, uh, that, 
um, there is definitely a link between weight and blood sugar regulation. Now, chicken and egg effect here. I really want to emphasize that um, being overweight is not necessarily the thing that is causing more dysregulated blood sugars, but that there's a strong association, right? So um, there is definitely a, you know, the heavier you are, the more likely it is to have dysregulated blood sugars, but that the studies show that that is dramatically exacerbated by weight discrimination. And so whatever the impact is of the weight and whether that's the weight itself, I mean, certainly, um, you know, adipocytes are producing hormone signals that can drive inflammation. There, there is definitely a physiological effect there. Um, and that inflammation can then drive insulin resistance. There is a, a basal physiology. I'm not trying to say that, um, you know, having a high body fat percentage is harmless. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that the stigma and the weight discrimination on is on top of that, um, and they've measured this looking at hemoglobin A1C, that that is the the bigger effect or an equally problematic effect. And so um, when you put that in the context of the research showing that it's um, experiencing the weight discrimination is more likely to increase weight and there is a physiological effect from weight, then it's really clear to see that that is the, the intervention point, right? The intervention point is not... Um, is not get that person on a, on a diet to lose weight. The intervention point is get rid of the weight discrimination. So you get rid of that vicious cycle. And that is not how this is viewed, um, medically at all or socially. And that is a thing that really, really needs to change. And then what's been fascinating is there've been also studies that have looked at, uh, all cause mortality, increased mortality risk, um, and there was one study that actually had two very different populations. Um, so it was using these these um, big, one was called the Health and Retirement Study, tons of data. The other one was called the Midlife in the United States Study, which was, you know, fun because it was MIDAS as, a, as an acronym. A lot of these studies have like fun acronyms. Um, and what it showed was in both of these populations that weight discrimination was associated with a nearly 60% increased mortality risk. Um, and that it was the uh, stronger predictor of mortality than um, any of the other, you know, any of the other things that they could correct for. Um, and the association between weight discrimination and mortality was stronger than for other types of discrimination. And so um, these studies that are really trying to separate out the impact of weight versus um, the mental health challenges that come with weight discrimination. Um, they're, they're few and far between, but they, they have been, there are enough to have some systematic reviews. Um, there are enough to have some meta-analyses, especially in the cardiovascular disease um, field. And they show over and over and over again that the far more important thing to be focusing on is not the weight itself, 
but is the the looking at weight as a symptom um and the looking at um a root cause right what is what is the thing that is driving both diabetes and um weight gain or driving cardiovascular disease and weight gain and studies have basically shown that um you know things like uh healthy eating activity those um behaviors are really only about account for about 25% of the difference in health outcomes. The other 75% are things like uh, socioeconomic status, right? Where people live, work, play, um, uh, their exposure to environmental toxins. Um, those things are, are stronger predictors. And it really emphasizes that the focus on weight loss is, uh, as a primary focus is not the right way to go about addressing the public health challenges that are these chronic illnesses, right? Like there's increased incidence of diabetes and cardiovascular disease, despite, you know, 40 years of USDA dietary guidelines that purport to be, uh, devised to address those things. I mean, we obviously have talked about on the show how those were flawed, but it, it's uh, what's happened is that those dietary guidelines and the diet industry, which is worth $80 billion a year, have actually magnified weight discrimination and fat phobia and fat shaming um, when the problem is not the weight um, by itself, right? Um, the weight may be a symptom of needing some uh, living in a food desert and, or not having access to healthy food or knowing what, what is a healthy food, right? There's a lot of misinformation out there of not, um, not having, um, you know, not having access to, you know, or having barriers to lifestyle changes that would benefit health. Those are the intervention points, um, not weight loss by itself. It needs to be, um, you know, the whole idea behind the health at every size or the health at any size is that the things that matter are not necessarily going to result in weight loss, and that's okay. It, it's about um, really looking at um, the mental health piece because that mental health piece of um, body shame is really, really damaging, and then combining that with healthy diet. Movement's really important. Fitness is really important. Getting enough sleep's really important. Stress management's really important. And stress management in the context of chronic social stress is really, really challenging. And so it needs a comprehensive approach that's looking at day-to-day -day choices and healthy diet and lifestyle um, as a point of self-care in an environment where there is no shame associated with overweight and obesity because that is a symptom and not a personal failure. It would be like when someone got cancer being like, oh, well, if only you had not used those Teflon pans. You know what I mean? Like, I, just, <laughs> I don't know. Okay. So I just want to highlight some of the things that you mentioned because I think that they're, it's a big deal <laughs> that you could yeah. be, um, put yourself in a situation where you are, weight discrimination could happen or 
um, has happened in the past and you feel like you're putting yourself out there again um, exacerbates symptoms that we know to be uh, problematic and lead to less health and wellness. So, um, you know, blood pressure, cortisol, different things like that. And to me, when I think about the socioeconomic advantage that, for example, my kids have, because I've had the opportunity to educate myself on this, to take the time to read these articles, to understand um, what um, impacts it might have to provide my children with lower inflammatory foods and to be there for them with this supportive and encouraging concept of um, health at any size and support. And so like they have all of these advantages, not just from a food desert perspective, but also because I have, I am a college educated parent who is open to this idea that fat phobia exists and that creates a problem and therefore my children have more of an advantage as it relates to this aspect as well. And so to look at kind of the roots of where this diet culture came from, um, you know, going all the way back to uh, racism and um, looking at the bodies that were I I don't even want to like I don't want to dig up some of this um triggering uh, concepts of where it came from but I do encourage people to read the racist roots of fighting obesity because to me um to think about how regardless of the um, metabolic risk factors when you control for behaviors like smoking or physical exercise or dietary variables and you still see that there is um, greater likelihood for obesity when you are, for example, a woman of color, it just it, it boggles my mind at the advantages that just continue to pile up for example white men right and I, mm-hmm. I think about it from that perspective because I have I am raising um, a, a handful more than a handful of those myself and um, it's it's concerning that that is that is the environment that we live in and it is pervasive because you can't watch TV without seeing a commercial for a weight loss thing and showing a before and after picture that the after is this like thing that is coveted. And yet you could do a Google search and all of the biggest loser winners. And I think there's like a 1%, right? It's like two people that haven't gained back their weight in all of those seasons of shows. And um, how much unhealthier they are now that they they went through that. I mean, we talked about it on the on the last show. So I'm getting off topic, but I just, I, I wanted to kind of reemphasize this concept of, um, the judgment and the discrimination that comes from fat phobia as contributing to factors which reduce health. Like yeah. that is a big deal <laughs> that we have science for that. You know what I mean? Well, no, what I think is really um, worth emphasizing is there's a tremendous amount of research showing that um, behavior changes, right? Things like um, uh, healthy diet, eating more fruits and vegetables, drinking water, being you know, like being active. We know that those are really, really well established 
um, health promoting behaviors. And, um, and so uh, some of the research, and this is actually a lot of research um, that Lind- Dr. Lindo Bacon has done, has shown like they've, um, they've compared, um, you know, a sort of traditional dietary approach versus a, um, they sort of call it a, um, uh, a weight inclusive approach. So um, they put the f- emphasis on viewing health as being uh, sort of multifaceted and they um, direct efforts towards improving health rather than uh, losing weight. And uh, they compare that to what they call the, like, the traditional weight normative approach, where the emphasis is on weight loss um, when defining health, right? So they define health as being thin, as opposed to defining health in this like much more uh, complex, nuanced, and uh, frankly, like scientifically valid way. And, um, and what they've shown is that when they've compared these two different approaches for people, um, and they've done this up to uh, a BMI of 40, they haven't validated this approach um, in BMIs higher than that. But that's still, I think, I, I think the, the research um, has a lot of bases covered. They've shown that um, the weight-inclusive approach um, translates to uh, better long-term behavior changes, right? So those people are maintaining uh, a more active lifestyle. Uh, they're eating, you know, more whole foods, right? They're they're um, they're making more lasting, positive change in their day-to-day choices as a result of focusing on health rather than focusing on weight loss. And that I think is the the big take-home here is that, um, is that taking weight loss out of the equation is beneficial. Um, that doesn't mean that someone's not going to make all these changes and they're not, you know, they won't lose weight, right? It just means that weight loss is not the goal. Health is the goal and weight loss might go with it and it might not. Um, and it doesn't matter if it doesn't because health is the goal. And, you know, none of this, none of this discussion is to take away from the importance of a nutrient dense anti-inflammatory diet or getting enough sleep or living an active lifestyle or managing stress or getting out into nature. Like all of those things are still true. Um, but rather than implementing those things in order to lose weight, it's implementing those things for the sake of those things, that those things improve health and, um, weight is not right. It's really taking weight as a metric of health just out of the equation completely. And enjoyable. I think this is the thing that's really helped me and I want us to reframe our our mind. It's, you know, getting out and being active isn't just you do it because you want to be healthy. But like, I think of you know, us going camping and how much more we move and how much more we're in Mm. the sun and how much more, you know, we're swimming or we're, it takes effort to lug all that stuff out of the car and you know what I mean? And build it up and put it back. That is physical activity. It is fun. We love it. (laughs) You know what I, and so, um, I, I was a competitive lifter, not just because I am psychotically, 
uh, competitive. I was a competitive lifter because I loved lifting so much that I wanted to do it all the time. And that was a way to justify like being in the gym for three hours a day, several days a week. And, you know, I had such a hard time finding something new that I enjoyed because I loved that so much that I had this void that couldn't be filled. And Mm -hmm. I talked about how much I have been enjoying Peloton, that I laugh and I cry and I um, get an endorphin rush. And I just, I think part of our problem as a society is this idea that because it is all framed in weight loss, because it is all and then people use health and and healthy weight interchangeably all the time that as a society we have come to view activity as exercise and we have come to view it in a like a requirement sort of negative sort of mm-hmm. way versus a PE class kind yes, of way. Yes. Yeah. Right. And like you're compared against everybody and you're charted like if you're normal or not, instead of like the, the things that I didn't realize I was doing in PE that were fun because I enjoyed them. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so um, I, I would like us all to kind of reframe for everybody in our lives, ourselves and our children and, and these healthy habits we're trying to make. It's like, you know, I try to explore the things that bring us joy and doing more of them. And um, I, I'll say to my kids, like, just go play outside. You know, like, I don't even care what you're doing. Just get out of the house. <laughs> just go. You know what I mean? Because I know if they're outside, they're going to be moving around. Whatever it is they're doing, they're going to be moving around. And, and I think the more that we can tell ourselves that, um, I think we get more away from the diet culture because I do think that it takes a long time to break that cycle of, okay, well, I'm going to go for a walk to be healthy. And I think that there's that underlying idea and factor that will exist of, because ultimately I want to lose weight, right? Like we can tell ourselves like, oh, I'm, I'm doing this for health and like whatever. But, um, I really like this, I know this is a complete tangent now, but there's this song by Lizzo called Fitness. And I really like to put that on and pump myself up when I'm just not feeling it, when I'm not feeling like I want to be active, because the whole song is about like, I do this for me. I do this because I want to feel good about myself. And, um, and I enjoy it. And that's, I don't know, that song just like pumps me up and gets me in the right mind frame of like, it doesn't matter where I rank on a leaderboard. It doesn't matter like, you know, if I lose weight from doing this or not, I'm doing it because I feel good when I do it. And ultimately I feel good because health, right? I feel good because Mm -hmm. I'm helping my hormones. I feel good because I'm sweating and detoxing. I feel good for like a multitude of reasons. I'm going to sleep better tonight because I exercised. All the things that we talk about. But if we get caught up in that, instead of just focusing on like, let me just find enjoyment in what I'm doing, then I do, I think that it just kind of pulls you back into that like diet culture mindset, which we already know how I feel about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, um, it was almost like you were reading my, my, my mind in your <laughs> description because, um, you know, this is one of the things that I realized as I was, I was going and reading all of this, um, research and, um, you know, I, even though I have long sort of talked about, um, health, uh, 
over like health as being the priority rather than weight loss. That doesn't mean that I have also been um, like not somebody who wants to lose weight. And so for me, like I realized I'm like, oh, I have basically like 30, 35 years worth of uh, body image damage to undo in my own head. Like I need to figure out um, how to how to just like drop this and let it go and, and not have, um, not have weight loss as a goal, not have it as a thing. And, um, you know, I, I put a lot of effort into healthy lifestyle, healthy diet. It makes me feel good. I manage for autoimmune diseases with diet and lifestyle and functional medicine. And those, those are the things that, are important, how I feel, um, how much energy do I have? What's my mood like? And I've always sort of like tried to like up until today, I have had that as part of my definition of health, right? Like, do I laugh when the kids tell a not very funny joke? Um, because it's funny because they thought it was funny, right? Like is that to me is a, a metric of health because if I'm stressed, I'm not going to laugh. If my stress is well managed, I'm going to laugh because it's just funny that the kid thought it was funny, even though it's not funny. And so I, I used to put weight in that list, right? So I had a, I had a, I think a really good list of like the things to me that are more important indicators of health, but weight was on the list and I need to just take it off. I need to, it needs to not be on the list anymore. And, um, and that is a thing that I'm going to have to really work on um, emotionally for myself. Um, uh, and that it's going to be tough. And I feel like your your description of sliding into that oh, and yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll lose a couple pounds if I do this, right? Sliding into that, um, I I I have to figure out. Um, for myself, how not to. And I, I want to acknowledge that for anybody who has, um, has had a health journey that has included, um, weight loss or, or weight loss diets, um, there's a mindset that is drilled into us that, I think is going to be really hard for me to shake. And I, I really want to sort of wrap up the science with, uh, compassion, compassion for myself, compassion for other people who are hearing this and going, yeah, but like, how, do, <laughs> but how do I do that? How do I, how do I take decades of not being happy with my body and find body acceptance, um, and bo body positivity. Like how, how do I do that? I don't know. I'm working on it too. Um, and, um, the only thing that I can think of is that it takes a lot of really positive self-talk, um, to outweigh all of the years of negative self-talk. And that, that is my primary focus. Yep. Um, and, we already know uh, that, that, that negative self-talk only compiles onto those negative health factors mm. and potentially gaining weight, right? Like, so mm. I feel like three the, times, right. three times higher risk. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I feel times. like each time we find ourselves 
in that. Every time we even think about weight as it relates to, you know, how our clothes are fitting or what whatever justification you're telling yourself is the alternative to weight loss, right? Like whether you're measuring yourself or, you know, whatever it is, reminding yourself that in that moment by doing that activity that you're actually increasing your likelihood to gain weight that will result in a negative health effect is a good way to stop yourself from doing it, right? Like if we told Mm -hmm. ourselves like the more I obsess about wanting to lose weight, the more likely I am to gain weight. Um, just stop. Just, I'm not going to think about it anymore. Um, or or the more likely I am to, the more I obsess about my weight, the more likely I am to drive my cardiometabolic risk factors. Yep. I really like Lindo Bacon's phrasing of being weight neutral. So the concept of, um, health at every size or health at any size and being body positive are sometimes, a little far reaching or there's judgment associated with them or whatever it is. And I, th- I feel like it feeds into um, also this like new marketing shtick by people of um, finding another way of this diet culture thing to reach you in some aspects. And so this idea of being weight neutral, um, so to just focus on healthy habits, to just focus on what exercise and fitness activities do I enjoy that I can sustainably do regularly? Um, How can I improve the nutrient density of the food that I'm eating and reduce things that cause inflammation or don't, don't make me feel my best, right? Like I had, Mm -hmm. I had a food yesterday. I don't know what it was. I got to trace back um, I do not feel well, right? Like I feel, I feel lethargic because of whatever it was. And I got to trace back and figure out what that was. Um, because I'm paying attention to my body's cues, I can tell that like something wasn't right. And um, yeah. it's not about whether or not that food um, was high c- calories or, you know, whatever. It's like, I don't feel well from that. So let me figure out what it was. And I want to avoid it because I don't want to feel this way again. And then there's all the other things that we talk about that are part of um, healthy living that are also weight neutral things like not smoking and getting sleep mm-hmm. and all of those things. And you're, you're doing those for the sake of enjoying life. And because your body is the thing that carries you through life. It is not the thing to spend your life obsessing about, right? Like when you're on your deathbed, are you going to be saying like, gosh, I really wish that I would have um, eaten less ice cream, for example. Or (laughs) are you going to be saying like, I wish that I enjoyed the time that I had. I wish I'd spent more time, you know, on that Thanksgiving laughing and having fun with everybody instead of worrying about the judgment of others and how much I ate or how much I was judging someone else for what they were eating based on their weight. I think we all have those like family members who can't go to an event without talking about a diet or weight loss, right? And so it's like, it becomes the thing we obsess about, which we've learned now creates all this, um, emotional trauma around weight discrimination and all of these things that then lead to um, more health negative impacts. And so it's like, what can we do to just be weight neutral, to just focus on those things that make us 
feel good, that we know are indicators of health and promote and, healthy and living. And feel good, feel good not in the moment, right? To right. not conflate instant gratification with the good feeling of like making majority healthy choices, not perfection, but like not conflating those two. Because I think one of the um, things that I have seen that um, we will definitely be talking more in our Patreon bonus audio um, is critiques of the health at any size, health at every size um, movement as being a license for people to let go and binge eat and eat whatever they want. And that's not what we're talking about. Um, and that's not what the movement is about. The movement is about focusing on these, uh, these, these, not these other things, these things that are important for health rather than weight, because the science really does show that weight is not a very good indicator of health. Um, that in fact, um, there's, uh, some interesting um, uh, data that we didn't have time to go into that shows that if you look at um, cardiovascular disease risk factors, that there is a large number of, uh, I'm using air quotes for normal weight people who are not diagnosed because the assumption is that if you're a normal weight, obviously you're, you have a healthy diet and lifestyle, and that's not a very good assumption. Uh, therefore, you're not going to have high cholesterol and high blood pressure. You're not going to have cardiovascular disease because clearly you must be doing, you know, good things like that. That judgment is there. And the, the opposite is true for people who are overweight or obese, that they're sort of told that, oh, they need to do this thing for their heart health. Meanwhile, they have excellent cardiovascular um, health because they are healthy um, as overweight or obese people. And it's it really emphasizes we've got problems from both sides associated with that assumption and that, you know, it's this is about um, not using the term health at any size or health at every size as a, um, excuse to not do the healthy things. What it's doing is saying that your weight is not, it's not a checkbox to check. It's not one of the things. The things are all the things that Stacy just listed. And I can't even begin to tell you how excited I am to dive into this like medical discri discrimination factor over on Patreon because um, I have seen it not just like in this ambiguous sense of you know whoever my prim primary care physician was that diagnosed misdiagnosed me multiple times based on judgments or assumptions around my fitness but I've actually seen it in our community um, I've I've gotten some people who struggle with this as well because of the education that they're taught based on weight being such an indicator and assumptions to make around it and you make such mm -hmm. a good point it's not just about misdiagnosis of um for example, someone who is overweight but fit, um, being be missing that it could be, in my case, dehydration and assuming that it is some, you know, intestinal problem because I eat a crappy diet. Um, and then the dehydration was like flank pain, <laughs> right? Like, right. this is just, you know, like mind blowing to me that that's where we went with that. But 
Um, also on the other side, that someone who would be of a normal weight range would then not be properly given the medical care that they need because an assumption would be made that it couldn't possibly be blah, 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 because they're not overweight or they'd be, right. you know what I mean? Like whatever it is. So it, it, it is, it is really a problem and we're doing a disservice to our entire, um, community and where where we are right now and I do think that it has played into this um, shift since our great-grandmothers when we've begun to see so much um, uh, change in the health in terms of like increase of um, you know cancer and cardiovascular and uh, diabetes and all these things that we point to I also think about what was viewed as um, a healthy body for our great-grandmothers is very different from what a healthy body looks like today. And that judgment and that um, weight discrimination about bodies has definitely increased as people have more camera, more video, more social media, more magazines, more all of these things in your face about how you're supposed to look a certain way versus you know, this ideal ideological body of Marilyn Monroe actually being a size 12. And um, there's like some famous pictures of her being a weightlifter, right? Like she enjoyed lifting weights. And so, you know, I think about those kinds of things and I wonder how much that has played into um, that cycle of change in those, in those few hundred years to where we were as a society in terms of, you know, overall health. And then, as you said, the more judgment and the more um, assumptions have been made, the more of that diet culture has been built from, you know, billions of dollars industry to now we have this, um, the problem is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger as a result. And that's, that's not a coincidence. We now see it in the science, which is why we started the show by saying, like, we're going to give you some science and some data. And it's, it's mind blowing to me because this was something I conceptualized for a lot of time, but it's not something that I knew that there was hard data to support. And it is, it really does make you need to step back and rethink things. And I appreciate that you recognized me kind of calling you out on the, on the like, do the walk to feel good or to feel healthy. And I'm like, yeah, but just don't tell yourself that in order to lose weight, right? Like we, ha- yeah. we have to we have to be um, vigilant with our thoughts on that because it is so ingrained. It is hard. It really, and, and the only reason I'm able to do that is because I've been doing it for a couple of years, but it's not to say that I'm on top of my own ish either, right? I got my own problems. So we're all there. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, you know, again, this is, um, I think for, as we wrap up this episode, I think for us, our favorite podcast episodes are always the ones that, um, uh, break some kind of barrier in our own minds and, um, lead us to make, um, some kind of change, right? So that research is something that goes, Oh, okay. I need to start eating breakfast every day. That being another, for me, example of, you know, a time where I did a ton of research for a podcast episode and went, Oh, I need to make a change. And this has been one of those ones for me. This was research that I was not aware of, but, um, it's kind of like, like once you've learned it, you can't unlearn it. Now that I, um, now that I know, 
that um, that this has actually been a field of research to really understand that um, weight is more a problem from a mental health perspective um, because of weight discrimination than it is for the weight itself. Um, and now that I see that the mental health uh, challenges that come with being the recipient of weight discrimination, um, that that is the thing that is uh, harmful and that can lead to, um, you know, things like, you know, the problems of yo-yo dieting that we talked about in episode 353. Um, now that I have that in, on my radar, if, for me, this is just one of those, it's like an inflection point uh, for me. Um, you know, not just personally, but professionally, I feel like I need to um, really sort of reevaluate um, how how I talk to myself about weight, but also how I talk broadly about weight. And, um, and I think this is, this is just, it's really important information. And, um, and again, I, I really want to emphasize to our listeners, um, you know, I don't expect this to be easy for me personally. Um, I don't think this is just a turn a switch and, Oh, <laughs> I, I'm, I no longer make assumptions based on somebody's weight or my, I don't, I no longer judge myself based on my own weight, right? Like that's, it's not going to be like a, oh, done. Um, we're just, I'm just adding this to the, the, um, list of, um, internal work that I need to do in, uh, a year that has revealed a lot of need for, <laughs> uh, internal work. So that's 2020. Agreed. Well, listeners, thank you for sticking in through the end. If you want to hear our real thoughts on this, I'm sure it's going to get quite soapboxy and enthusiastic over on Patreon. You can go hop over there and um, we thank you for listening and tuning in. If you have follow-up questions or you want to hear more on this topic, we would love to hear from you on social media or via email. Make sure you're subscribed to our newsletters, all that good stuff. Um, we love connecting with and hearing from you. And I hope that you enjoyed this show as much as we did. Thanks for listening. Do you love the Whole View podcast? We'd love for you to leave us a review wherever you listen and share a podcast with your friends and family. And did you know that you can now get exclusive behind-the-scenes content on Patreon for less than the price of an almond milk matcha a month? Your Patreon membership supports us and gets you access to a monthly bonus episode. But not for kids' ears, because our bonus content is explicit. You can find us as The Whole View on Patreon for our real, unfiltered thoughts on this week's episode. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.